0: 2007, November 15th. Today is Lecture 38, The Ice Giants, Uranus and Neptune. Okay, let's finish up our discussion of the planets, or at least the big planets today, by talking about the last two planets in the solar system, the ice giants, Uranus and Neptune. The key ideas for today are as follows. We're going to define a class of planets now known as ice giants. A few years ago, these were called gas giants, but we'll see today why people are now talking about them as if they're a slightly, very distinctively separate class of, of gas planets. They're mostly ices with very shallow hydrogen and helium atmospheres. And they're have smaller and they smaller planets, and they have less hydrogen and helium than Jupiter and Saturn. They stand out in terms of differences of their composition and differences of internal structure, as we'll see in just a moment. We're then going to take some close look at, individually at these two planets. Uranus, which lacks inter- a source of internal heat, and so it's virtually featureless. You, you really don't see much going on in the atmosphere of Uranus. Big contrast with what you see, for example, in Jupiter and Saturn. It also has one of the most extreme axis tilts in the solar system. It's practically laying over on its side with an axis tilt of 98 degrees, and so Uranus is going to be the land of extreme seasons. You may think back to one of those questions I asked both on the exam and in the morning about what would happen if we tilted the Earth over on the side. That question was inspired by, by the actuality of Uranus, and we're going to see a little bit about that here in a second. Finally, we'll meet Neptune, the outermost of the giant planets and the outermost ice giant in our solar system. It has a source of internal heat. It actually emits more energy than it receives from the sun. And as a consequence, it has active weather. So it actually has something really interesting going on. Although lately, as we'll see, Uranus has actually started to get interesting because we're heading into Uranus spring. And finally, I'll end up wrapping up the lecture with again, one of those contrast and compare sections although this one will be a lot shorter on contrasting and comparing among the gas giant planets. Well, how do the gas giants and ice giants compare? So let's start out with the planets at a glance. And yes, my colors are working today. Uranus is out at 19.2 astronomical units. It takes 84 years to complete one circle around the sun. It's in a nearly circular orbit and very, very close to the plane of the ecliptic. Neptune is out at 30 astronomical units. It's got a period of 165 years, again, very circular orbit, A little bit of a tilt to it, about 1.8 degrees. Uranus and Neptune stand out in particular because they are the only two planets of the solar system we've discussed, met so far, that were not known in classical times. Both Uranus and Neptune had to wait until the invention of the telescope to be discovered. Uranus was discovered by accident by William Herschel in in the 18th century using a telescope in his backyard. Whereas Neptune, as you may recall, was a much more spectacular discovery because it was predicted using Newtonian gravity and the odd orbital motions of Uranus, which didn't quite fit the predictions and revealed the presence of another massive object somewhere out in transuranian space. And using those predictions, Le Verrier in France and Adams in the UK predicted the position of where this unseen, mysterious eighth planet should be and lo and behold, it was in the position where Joseph Galla from the Berlin Observatory pointed his telescope and discovered Neptune in 1848. Since then, the race to discover other planets has been on through the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It was thought that there would be a ninth planet, certainly the discovery of Pluto in 1930 was declared as such. But it was suddenly realized over time that Pluto was just a whole lot smaller and a whole lot different than the other planets. This is a controversy which is still playing itself out within the astronomical community. But as of 2006, the International Astronomical Union has decided that Pluto is in fact one of the prototypes of a new class of planets known as the dwarf planets. And so we're sort of dropping it, if you will, from the roster of the full-size giant planets or major planets. And so we're going to end our discussion of major planets with Uranus and Neptune. And we'll deal with Pluto separately, really now in context, not as another planet, but as one of the larger members of a class of outer icy bodies of the solar system. Neptune and Uranus are giant planets, although, as we'll see, they're called the ice giants. They're very much very close to being twins. Uranus is about 14 and a half times the mass of the Earth and about four Earth radii, four Earth diameters across. Neptune is 17 times the mass of the Earth, but also about four Earth radii. So that tells you right away that Neptune is a somewhat more dense planet than Uranus because it has a higher mass, but packed in the same size. And showing it in contrast here is a scale size model of the Earth inserted using a a computer. Another thing that you notice right away about Neptune and Uranus is their color they really are sort of blue-green blue color. Why is that? We'll see in just a second here. And that Uranus is virtually featureless. Now you can kind of begin to make out some features here, sort of a little bit of striping and banding, but they really had to crank the contrast on this Voyager picture to be able to see it. Whereas Neptune shows dark and light regions, it shows bands and belts and zones, just like was seen on, on Jupiter and Saturn, but much more muted, and again, this kind of aqua blue color. And they really do look like this through the telescope. I mean, we don't get this clear a view from, from, these are obviously pictures from spacecraft. Hubble Space Telescope and some of the fancy adaptive optics telescopes on the ground, like Keck, can begin to give us clear pictures of this. But if you look at it through, like, say, the 12-inch telescope over on Smith Lab, they really do look blue. They're very distinctive, very obvious disks. Well, there's only been one spacecraft that has ever visited these planets. It's the Voyager 2 spacecraft. It flew by Uranus in January of 1986 and August of 1989. I like to say that in many ways, sort of Voyager 2 and I had very similar educational profiles. Voyager 2 first flew past Jupiter and then Saturn while I was an undergraduate, it flew past Uranus while I was in the middle of graduate school. And it flew past Neptune when I just finished my first postdoctoral fellowship at University of Texas. I was a real big, I'm a big Voyager fan. Uh, Voyager outlived its, its design lifetime. It was designed to make it to Jupiter, probably survive all the way to Saturn. But using a series of clever maneuvers, the JPL scientists were able to keep the spacecraft alive to make it all the way out to Neptune and beyond. Voyager 2 is still operating. It's on its way out of the solar system. It's on an escape trajectory, and it's still transmitting, however, weakly. It turns out that Voyager 2, probably within the next decade or so, maybe sooner, maybe later, we're not sure, will leave the confines of the solar system altogether. We'll actually exit the zone, where the local gas in space is dominated by the sun and enter interplanetary, interstellar space. And that's a region where the solar wind and and interstellar gas begin to merge evenly into each other. We haven't yet reached that point, but Voyager 2 will certainly be one of the spacecraft to tell us when it happens. It's a remarkable spacecraft. In addition to the the close-up studies, which occurred just during those brief few days when they flew past the Uranus and Neptune systems, lately these planets have been a a source of of tremendous study using primarily the Hubble Space Telescope, and more recently using some adaptive optics techniques that use lasers and very, very fast mirrors to de-twinkle the air and actually give you the clearest possible picture with large telescopes. So some of the pictures we'll be showing today and some of the results will be based on those more recent studies. Certainly Uranus and Neptune being the outermost of the, of the big planets, there's still a lot more we can learn from them. But we've learned quite a bit. Now the first question I want to address today on Uranus and Neptune is why they're blue. Why do they look this really bright, vivid blue color? And the reason has to do with the structure of their atmospheres. They're gas giants, in many ways sim- similar to that of Uranus and Neptune. But a big difference is we're further out in the solar system. We're out at 19 and 30 astronomical units. So just to use round numbers, 20 and 30 astronomical units, because I can do the math in my head real fast, that's one four thousandth and one. Make sure I got this right. One four hundredth and one nine hundredth the sunlight we receive here on Earth. So close to one thousandth when we get all the way out to Neptune. So it's cold out there. It's so cold that methane begins to actually condensed out as a crystalline, in crystalline form in the atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune, and also to form a gas, or it sort of forms a haze, kind of like a, a light fog of methane, over what should normally be the hydrogen-helium layers along with other volatiles. Methane has an interesting property in its absorption bands. Most of its absorption bands are also in the visible part of the spectrum, in addition to being out in the infrared. Now, the sun produces essentially white light, at least as far as the human eye is concerned, which is a mixture of all colors, and I've shown just three of them, blue, green, orange, and red here, but you could have drawn others. turns out that methane will actually absorb very strongly red and orange light, but it will allow green and blue light to pass on through that haze layer. Now, I've greatly exaggerated the depth of the haze layer here in my cartoon, This light, the the blue and green light, instead of being absorbed in the haze layer, goes down until it hits the real cloud tops of the atmosphere of, of Uranus and Neptune, bounces off those cloud tops and passes unencumbered out back out through that methane haze layer. Whereas any red, yellow or orange light that passes into that haze layer is absorbed in place. So when I look at the reflected light off the planet, all the red and yellow and oranges have been removed from the sunlight and the only thing that's left are the greens and yellows from the methane absorption from the, that are not absorbed by methane. And this is what gives the, planet, it's the planets their characteristic green, a blue or bluish-green color to them. Now, in the case of Jupiter and Saturn, there's also going to be methane in the atmosphere, but it's mostly in gas form. It's very, very thin. There isn't a whole lot of methane in the upper atmospheres. It's mostly water, ices, and a lot of complex compounds. And that's why Jupiter, tend to ha- Jupiter and Saturn tend to be white or white with kind of orangish-brownish tints to them. So it's a real, the, the real difference here is because we've gotten a lot colder, we're getting a lot of methane haze, and we just made that slight compositional change, and it makes all the difference in the outward appearance of the atmosphere. Now, Uranus and Neptune, many years ago, would have been called gas giants, and they would have just been called little tiny Jupiters. That's what people thought of them as. But as we began to study them more, as we found, measured their mass, found their higher densities, their densities were so high they were much higher than you would expect for a gas giant. And there were other anomalies that just didn't make sense. So recently people have begun to realize that Uranus and Neptune are not just simply Jupiter and Saturn scaled down. They're really fundamentally different inside in many ways. In particular, if you slice them open, and I'll have a little cartoon here in just a second, what you find is that most of their bulk is occupied by thick, slushy mantles of water, ammonia, and methane ices. So these things are basically big, slushy ice balls. they got rocky cores down in them, but they're lower mass, right? They're just a few teens of Earth masses rather than 100 or 300 Earth masses, as in the case of Saturn or Jupiter. So they have little ro- Earth-sized rocky cores, gigantic slushy mantles of ices, and then on top of that, you layer on a fairly shallow atmosphere of hydrogen and helium, mostly in molecular in the form of molecular hydrogen. But what you get when you look at the density, they're much more dense than Jupiter and Saturn. Their composition shows a lot more ices. In fact, most of the mass of Uranus and Neptune are made up of ice and rock, not hydrogen and helium. That's a big difference. If you look at Jupiter and Saturn, the bulk of their mass is hydrogen and helium. So as a consequence of this, they're called the ice giants because they really are mostly ices rather than mostly gases. Now the other thing about Uranus and Neptune that makes them stand out as very different from Jupiter and Saturn is they're not very big. They're relatively low mass. As a consequence, the internal pressure, which is due to the weight of everything crushing down on top of you, never really gets up into those really, really super high pressure zones like we saw in Jupiter and Saturn. As a consequence, molecular hydrogen stays in the sort of general sort of gas, high density gas form. It never gets pressed into that exotic metallic hydrogen form we saw in Jupiter and Saturn. And so as a consequence, another important difference is even though they have relatively deep hydrogen-helium atmospheres themselves, the pressures never get to the point that you can get metallic hydrogen mantles. And so their internal structure and their magnetic fields are expected to be and found to be very different. So we call these things the ice giants. They're mostly ice and rock in the bulk of their mass. They're low mass, low pressure, so they never form metallic hydrogen mantles. So here's what they look like if I slice them open. This is, again, these are notional pictures. These are sort of... Pretty well to scale here, again, showing Earth to scale. Uranus on the left, Neptune on the right. They have rocky cores, which are about the mass of the Earth, but they're under relatively high compression, so they're physically smaller than the Earth. <coughs> Around that rocky core is kind of what I'd call <coughs> slushy ice. Now, this is going to be pretty hot stuff because it's under compression, but it's basically compression frozen. But it doesn't freeze into one great big ice ball. It's basically a big slush ball. It sort of is a mixture of solid and, and, and liquid, just like, well, like slush. It's outside of that, which is a deeply differentiated heavy stuff sinks to the bottom, the rock to the bottom, the ice is on top of that, and then the gases were kind of gathered on top of that still, forming a molecular, a very fairly shallow molecular hydrogen mantle and then the thin layers that we see as the cloud tops, where you get the methane haze and so forth. This is, in part, a clue to how these objects probably formed. They formed around a rocky core. But they're way the, no, we're not, we're now at 1930 astronomical units. So we're way past the frost line. But we're also so far out in the solar system that we're starting to have where the solar nebula was petering out, starting to thin out at the outer edges. Most of the mass of the solar nebula is in the inner part. So when we're getting out to kind of the Uranus-Neptune and zone, we got lots of ices, so the rock ball basically started collecting up the ices, the ices condensed on it, and it basically started sucking up all the ices around it it could. After the mass gets big enough, we're big and we're cold, so you can retain hydrogen and helium in their atmospheres, they started trying to hoover up some of the hydrogen in their surroundings. But there wasn't much hydrogen out there to gather, so they never grew to kind of Jupiter-Saturn proportions. Their, their, their growth, in many ways, was arrested in this way. And it's not too surprising if you look at the total masses of Uranus and Neptune. They're, what, 13, 15, 7, was it 14 and 17 times the mass of the Earth. Remember yesterday, what were our estimates of the cores of Jupiter and Saturn? 10 to 15 Earth masses. So these things, some people think of these as perhaps failed cores of gas giants because they formed so far out, there wasn't enough gas to hoover up. So that's one big difference here. That's probably why these are still these big sort of ice and slush balls. They never built gigantic hydrogen atmospheres because they didn't really have much hydrogen to gather and their masses didn't get quite up into the zone that was found by Jupiter and Saturn. So let's take a look at some of these guys in detail. Uranus's atmosphere is... Pretty featureless. In order to see features, now here's a picture which almost sort of belies what I just said. You know, the first pictures we got back from, from uh from the Voyager 2 spacecraft, I remember that were striking and just how utterly, completely boring they were. Yeah, it was really cool to see this aquamarine billiard ball, but after a while you kind of wanted some contrast, some bands, some clouds. You know, do something! You know, do something, give us something to look at. They're really boring looking. The only way you can bring structure up in, in Uranus is you have to really crank the contrast. You have to go into Photoshop and just beat the crap out of the pictures to be able to see anything. Turns out that recently that's begun to change a little bit. There are Occasionally high clouds will appear in the upper layers of the atmosphere. What happens with the high clouds is they get between the planet and the ha- they get up above the haze layer. When they get up above the haze layer the clouds of ices are fairly shiny and they reflect back all the colors of sunlight before it gets absorbed by the methane. So you get these kind of white spots here. Those are just really high clouds. Any clouds that are below the methane haze layer, the red, the red, orange, and yellow gets sucked up by the methane. The green and blue goes in, bounces back off the deep layers, and you get the usual aquamarine color here. But you can begin to see various bands again bands and belts belts and zones high pressure systems and low pressure systems exactly the kinds of features we saw on Jupiter and Saturn however the clouds up here are really all very cold they very rarely billow above these top layers and it's a generally uniform appearance here you occasionally get a few clouds and storms but not a whole lot's going on it's a pretty calm place compared to the immense winds the immense storms that we saw on Jupiter and Saturn and the primary reason for that is that Uranus, unlike Jupiter and Saturn, lacks this source of contraction energy, gravitational contraction energy, giving it internal heat. In fact, Uranus does not appreciably generate more heat than it receives from the Sun. Most of its energy does appear to come from the Sun, maybe a little bit from internal energy, but not a lot. As With lack of that internal heat, it lacks any energy to drive its weather. And remember, it's 19 AUs out, so it's getting 400 times less sunlight in round numbers than the Earth is. So the weather is going to be really subtle. Like I said, you've got to kind of crank on it with Photoshop to see this stuff. Neptune, on the other hand, is quite a contrast. Neptune is extremely active. In fact, if you look at Neptune in the infrared, where you can see the heat radiation leaking out, Neptune emits about 2.7 times more energy than it receives from the sun. Okay, now you have to balance that by the fact it's out at 30 astronomical units and getting 900 times less sunlight per square meter than the Earth is, but it's also a pretty big catcher too. So, when you add it all up, Neptune also has a source of internal energy and not surprisingly, it also has much more interesting weather. We see gigantic cyclonic storms. We see these dark belts and bright zones. We see clouds of methane ice that rise up above the haze layer and reflect back at us. And these cyclonic storms are very active. They come and go. So this picture was taken with the Voyager 2 spacecraft. When this was seen, it was seen through the entire approach and passage by Neptune back in 1989. Everyone was real excited because they called it the Great Dark Spot. It was an an analog of the Great Red Spot on Jupiter. And people thought, wow, this is a great, it's a long-lasting, persistent cyclonic storm, just like on Jupiter. Then a few years later, when the Hubble Space Telescope was launched and trained, and with its fixed optics trained on Neptune, the dark spot was gone. It had actually vanished in the space of a few years. Now in recent years, some of these storms have come and gone, so there's clearly a lot of very active weather, and that active weather is not surprisingly being powered by its internal energy. So the way you can recognize one blue ball from another when you look at Uranus and Neptune is look for the active cloud layers here on Neptune, Or also it's usually portrayed with a much darker blue color. Here's some close-ups of some of that weather. Here's the, the great dark spot as seen by Voyager. And here's a rather nifty picture here. This shows these high methane clouds. This makes the point I was making earlier about these being clouds above the lower haze deck. You can actually see the shadows cast by these high methane cirrus clouds on the lower cloud decks here, these dark streaks underneath the light is basically the sunlight directions coming in from kind of here. and So you can see the shadows cast, much in the way, for example, if you've ever seen high contrails casting shadows on lower cirrus clouds out here on Earth. It's exactly the same effect. Now Uranus, as I mentioned, has another interesting feature to it, and part of that is also an explanation for why in 1989 the weather was really boring, but in the last couple of years the weather on Uranus has started to get a little interesting. It's not because Uranus has suddenly found a source of internal heat. It's because the solar radiation patterns on the surface of the planet, which is its only source of weather power, has begun to change dramatically. Uranus is tilted over on its axis by 98 degrees. That means it's actually got its north pole, defined in the usual right-hand sense, is pointing 8 degrees below the plane of its orbit. As a consequence, because the rotation is like a gyro, it's always going to point, the pole is always going to point to one place in space, just like our own pole points more or less towards Polaris all the way around through the year, is where the sun is in the sky, you get extreme seasons. The seasonal pattern takes the entire cycle of the orbit to go through, and the entire cycle of the orbit is about 42 years. So in 1986, which is when the Voyager spacecraft went flying by, was one of those times where the sun was basically overhead at the Uranus North Pole. As a consequence, the northern hemisphere of Uranus was in full sunlight. The entire southern hemisphere was in complete darkness. All the wind patterns would be, the greatest heating is right at the place just below the sun, that's high noon. And then the wind pattern would be hot flow hot to cold. So the winds actually flowed out kind of in a polar way. So you get this rapidly rotating planet, and but polar crosswinds trying to go out and spray along. And that kind of just sort of, people think that actually kind of erased most of the weather. Well, wait now, a quarter of an orbit later, to 2007, in fact, in May of 2007, was the passage of springtime. So we go from northern northern summer, if you will, to springtime on Uranus when the sun is right up over the equator. Now, the entire planet sees the sun over the course of one Uranus day. You know, it's about, I forget what the rotation rate is now. It's 10-odd hours or so. Maybe it's longer than that. I'm forgetting now off the top of my head. Anyway, twilight at the poles, sunlight on the equator, you've now changed the solar radiation pattern. The entire planet is being warmed as as Uranus does, the sort of barbecue roll throughout the course of a day. And so the weather's gotten interesting. By 2028, that situation will now be summer in the the, uh, southern hemisphere. The South Pole will be in full sunlight, and the North Pole will be in complete darkness. And then finally, kind of Uranian autumn will occur in 2049. So it's really slow seasons, but things have gotten interesting. So this picture was taken with the Keck Observatory last May, just about the time of Uranian spring, so now the sun, because we're back here at the Earth and we're looking out towards Uranus, so we're kind of look, we're kind of standing the equivalent of this, of the perspective of the sun. Now you can see that Uranus is nearly equator on. Uh, interesting, little spots appeared up here. A little rotating uh, cyclonic storm. You get some bright uh, zones. You get a couple dark belts have appeared. They're pretty subtle, and again, they've had to really crank the contrast to see them. You can also see the inner portions of the Saturn, of the Uranus ring system in this high contrast picture, and you can see some of the moons of Uranus labeled here showing the orbital plane of the moons. The orbital plane of the moons and the orbital plane of the rings are aligned with the equator of Uranus, not surprisingly, and so they too seem to be on their side as the planet rotates, or orbits. So again, we're seeing now in springtime, the weather's gotten a bit more interesting, and when it goes back to wintertime in about you know, a quarter of the orbit around, about um, 10 odd years from now, it's going to get boring again. Well, that makes a nice segue into a couple of other details of the Uranus and Neptune system. Uranus and Neptune also are accompanied by fairly substantial systems of moons. Now we're getting up into moons plural, seriously plural. Before we had one moon on the Earth, two moons on Mars, yeah, nothing on Mercury and Venus. Uranus has 27 moons that we know about so far. They range in size from fairly big ice balls but nothing up into the giant moon phase, five big spherical moons, so they're big enough, spherical enough, there's enough gravity to basically shape them into spheres, and they're called Miranda, Ariel, Umbriel, Titania, and Oberon. And then 22 small irregular ice chunks is basically what the rest of them are, probably captured sort of Kuiper belt objects and things like that. Uranus is quite a departure in terms of naming in the solar system. By the time Uranus was discovered by a German astronomer living in Britain at the time of King George III, all the moons that have been discovered have all been named for characters in Pope and Shakespeare. So this is one of the places where we finally decided, yeah, let's give up trying to name everything after Greek and Roman mythology characters because we're running out real fast. And so you get names like Miranda, Ariel, Umbriel, Titania, and Oberon—you will recognize some of these names. Ariel, for Miranda, and Ariel, for example, were characters in uh, *The Tempest*. Uh, Titania and Oberon are from *A Midsummer Night's Dream*, for example. Here is a picture of the giant, of the at least the giant moons, but the big moons of Uranus: Miranda, which has got a really messed up surface; Titania, Oberon, Umbriel, and Ariel. These are big, heavily cratered, icy surfaces. They're big enough to form into a sphere, but. None of them quite get up into that giant moon zone. Neptune currently has 13 known moons. It's hard to find little tiny rock balls when the planet's 30 astronomical units away, so the the pace of discovery of Uranus moons has been very slow. Most of these were discovered during the brief few days of the Voyager 2 pass in 1989. However, the biggest moon of Neptune, Triton, is actually big enough to get it up into the giant moon category It's a very large, very, very cold, icy moon that we're going to actually examine in some detail later in this course when we talk about the icy bodies of the outer solar system because it looks like a captured large icy body of the sort of Pluto-Eris sort of thing. It would be a dwarf planet were it actually out-orbiting the sun, but it's instead been captured into an orbit around Neptune. The rest of the moons turn out to be rather these sort of odd, irregular, icy things. Here's about the best pictures taken of Proteus and Larissa, there's not a whole lot to see here. We're back to, uh, by the way, Greek and, and Roman names here. Neptune was the god of the sea, and so the various naiads and others who were the accompany, uh, companions or, or servants of Neptune have gone into the names of the various moons that have gone on the system. The other oddity is that Triton has a retrograde orbit. It actually orbits in a backwards direction compared to the rotation of the planet. That makes it stand out like a sore thumb as far as properties of, of giant moons are concerned. Here's a picture of Triton, Voyager 2 spacecraft made a beautiful pass by Triton. And again, taking a quick look at this surface, you notice it's kind of red and dark. It's got uh, very few craters. It's a very active surface. This is an example of some of the interesting things that are awaiting us in the outer solar system as our spacecraft and our studies begin to press further and further out. So to kind of wrap up in today and spend the next few minutes talking about a comparison in detail of the of the jovian planets jupiter saturn uranus and neptune and of course we'll start with this particular picture which kind of says it all jupiter and saturn are huge they're gigantic gas bags they got rock and ice cores which are about the same mass as uranus and neptune but then they've built on top of that immense deep heavy hydrogen helium atmospheres in the case of jupiter and jupiter here The central cores may be 10 or 15 Earth masses, but the total bulk of gas on top of that tops out the total mass at 318 times the mass of the Earth. Saturn, too, has probably a 10 or 15 Earth mass core, probably around 10 Earth masses is a good estimate now, but it's like 96 Earth masses when you pile on all the gas. So they really are mostly gas. By contrast, Uranus and Neptune are Only in the teens, like I think it was 15 and 17 Earth masses, respectively, in round numbers, they probably got one Earth mass rock cores and most of their bulk is made up of these slushy ice mantles. So we have the gas giants and the ice giants. And again, I've shown the Earth for sort of comparative scale. So again, to sort of recap that picture in numbers, Jupiter and Saturn are the gas giants. They're really large, hundreds to almost 100 times the mass of the Earth super deep hydrogen helium atmospheres, deep metallic hydrogen mantles. The pressures in these atmospheres rise above that magic number of around four million atmospheres on the Earth. That gives you enough pressure to be able to press hydrogen until it starts acting in this weird metallic form. That w- Currents in that weird metallic liquid and hydrogen layers give you the very, very powerful magnetic fields we find on Jupiter and Saturn when you combine those circulation currents with the very rapid rotation of the planets. We also find dense, rocky cores, which are in the super-Earth size, 10 to 15 times the mass of the Earth. By contrast, Uranus and Neptune are smaller, they're 15 to 17 times the mass of the Earth, respectively. Like I said before, they're rock, ice, and slush balls with very, very thin outer coatings of hydrogen and helium. The pressures inside never, ever rise to the point that you get liquid metallic hydrogen, so their interiors are probably a slushy semi-liquid of water, ammonia, and methane ices. And so we get these basically slushball planets with an outer layer of gas to kind of make them look good. And rocky cores down the middle, only Earth size. And again, the primary reason for this is they're further out in the solar system. They formed in a place where there wasn't enough raw materials to grow into kind of gas giant size, like Jupiter and Saturn, which grew up in the biggest, densest, coolest portions. All the, all the conditions were right for Jupiter and Saturn to grow to immense size. We've seen this plot before and I wanna bring it back again. This is the plot that talks about atmosphere retention. And it makes this point about the fact that any point that's above one of these lines here, which represents the line of equilibrium between escape and retention. If you're above the line, the gas will be retained. If your planet is below the line, the gas will escape. So in this case, the gas giants Jupiter and Saturn can hold on to everything as can Uranus and Neptune. So planets like Uranus and Neptune have sufficient mass and they're in a place where it's sufficiently cold to have built large hydrogen-helium envelopes. The reason why those hydrogen-helium envelopes are not big is not because of their inability to retain the gas, but because there wasn't that much gas around to retain. So we have these objects just stand out. And furthermore, Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune stand out in very different mass regimes. So it, it, this diagram is very nice by showing because it shows you that these two planets really do drop into two separate regimes, right? The gas giants and the ice giants—they kind of separate themselves out. The terrestrial planets are down in here: Mars, Moon, Mercury, Venus, and Earth, and their varied atmospheres. And of course, as a preview of things to come in next in the next couple of weeks, are the icy bodies of the outer solar system, are where you don't have to just be big to hold to an atmosphere. If you're cold, that can make up for a lot of what you don't have by having a lot of gravity. So you can make up for that difference if you're really cold, because if you're really cold, you slow the molecules down and you drop them below your low, your low uh, escape speed. So you get things like Triton, Pluto, and Eris, which are a much lower mass than the moon, and yet they're gonna turn out to have interesting atmospheres. Titan, over here, has got a big mass and it's really cold, even bigger than Mars, Titan is the only moon in the solar system with an immense atmosphere, as we'll see towards next week. Titan, in fact, has got an atmosphere which is heavier and has higher pressure than the Earth. All right, back to the Jovians. If we slice the planets open, again, this graphically describes the difference of the insides, deep hydrogen atmospheres, metallic hydrogen mantles, big rock and ice cores, a lot of internal energy because of gravitational contraction, That gravitational contraction energy makes them radiate more energy than they receive from the sun. And you get big weather. You get warmer upper atmospheres. They're closer to the sun. Warmer upper atmospheres means a lot of really rich organic chemistry going on. And the Jupiter and Saturn are really colorful. Saturn's a bit more muted because its upper layers are getting more hazy and harder to see through, but it's still there. When you get out to Uranus and Neptune, again, they're ice balls. They're not very deep. Contraction energy is not as efficient. In the case of Uranus, it isn't enough to make up for the sunlight. Sunlight is basically the primary form of energy on Uranus, and it's boring-looking, except kind of now, but you got to again. You got to crank the contrast up to see it. It's, it's there, or the weather's there, but it's just weak. And then finally, Neptune produces more energy than it receives from the sun. It's a bit more massive, it's a bit more dense, which is probably part of the reason, and you get fairly active weather. But again, you look at the cross-sections here, It's rock and these gigantic mantles of ice. No metallic hydrogen at all. Pressure never gets up there where you can do that. The final piece of comparison is in the magnetic fields. All the Jovian planets, Uranus, Neptune, Saturn, and Jupiter, all have fairly strong magnetic fields. In fact, it's these magnetic fields we use to be able to tell what the rotation rates are by watching the radio modulation. Jupiter has by far the strongest magnetic field. This shouldn't be too surprising. It's got the biggest, deepest metallic hydrogen mantle. The conduction, convection currents inside that metallic hydrogen layer are immense. You get, generate huge currents, you generate huge magnetic fields, which when you couple it with the rapid rotation of the planet, you get the mother of all dynamos in the solar system. So you have this gigantic magnetic field. Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune also have fields, but they're somewhat smaller. In fact, the magnetic fields of Uranus, Neptune, and and, and Uranus, Neptune, and Saturn are all of roughly comparable strength. They're weaker than Jupiter's, but they're there and they're present nonetheless. In fact, if they weren't there, we'd have no way to measure the rotation rate at all. In fact, it'd be almost impossible to measure the rotation speed of Uranus because there's practically nothing to look at in the clouds. However, there the similarities end. Saturn and Jupiter are much more similar to each other. Uranus and Neptune, again, stand apart. And this is part of the reason why people want to think of them as ice giants as somewhat different. Uranus and Neptune's magnetic fields are off-center. And this just drives people people nuts. When the spacecraft flew by and we got detailed maps of of the magnetic field, it was like... Wow, these things are terribly misaligned. For example, the rotation axis and the magnetic poles are misaligned by 59 and 47 degrees, respectively. Now, the Earth's magnetic field is misaligned with our rotation. There's a, the magnetic pole is at a different latitude than the rotation pole of the Earth. And it wanders around a bit because of the active dynamo. In fact, some people think it actually flips entirely at various times. We know that from magnetic, magnetic fields frozen into Earth rocks. So, but no one has ever seen a tilt this big sustained for a long time. It's thought when you make that flip, the magnetic field goes away. What's going on here? You know, we really don't know. The second thing is, not only are they tilted, but the center of the magnetic field isn't on the core. It's sitting off to the side. In fact, it's 30% off for Uranus and 55% off for Neptune. Now, that's a lot of words, so I'll just show you this picture here. If you look at the magnetic fields of Jupiter and Saturn, they're anchored in the gigantic metallic hydrogen mantles, they're anchored to the cores of the planets, and so you end up with the magnetic fields and the rotation axes being pretty closely aligned. Jupiter's magnetic field and rotation axes are misaligned by about 10 degrees. On Saturn, they seem to be perfectly aligned, and... The the magnets, which are a little cartoon of a bar magnet with north and south poles here, are sitting there, right on the centers of the planets, twirling around. Everything looks normal. And you get to Uranus and Neptune, and you get these huge tilts, right? Here's the magnetic field of Uranus, but its tilt (laughs) rotation is way way over there. So a 59 degree difference of discrepancy in angle. Neptune, the discrepancy is a little smaller, but 47 degrees. It's like halfway between the pole and the equator in round numbers. And look where the center of these magnets are. This is not sloppy graphic art on the part of the person who drew this diagram. The magnetic fields are simply off-center. The why is still uncertain. One of the ideas is it has something to do with how you build a dynamo, not in a metallic liquid like we do in Jupiter and Saturn, but in kind of these slushy ice liquids. You should get some conduction in there, and maybe you can generate, you must obviously conduct generating magnetic fields, but there's something about how the sort of ice dynamo works, which is different than the metallic uh, liquid dynamos going on in Jupiter and Saturn, that may be behind these wacky magnetic fields. It's still a mystery. People who study magnetic fields find Uranus and Neptune just an, an endless source of fascination because things are so strange. So with this, I'm going to say we've sort of reached the end of the solar system. We've reached, Or at least reached the end of the giant planets of the solar system. But there's so much left. I've only briefly touched on the giant moons, which will be mainly the subject of next week. We'll talk about the giant moons of Jupiter and Saturn and those systems. And we'll also then end up talking about the rings of Saturn. So there's an awful lot more to go, and we'll pick that all up on Monday.